Good morning. If you, um, if you have a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 23? If you don't have a copy of the Bible but would like to, uh, to follow in a copy, then raise a hand and one will be brought to you now. Just keep it up there so it can be seen. And then someone come around and give you a Bible to borrow. For a while now, um, in fact, since about Easter, we've periodically been in a, in a series looking at the events of the Easter weekend. Jesus' um, arrest, his betrayal, uh, his trial, his death on the cross, his crucifixion. And um, today, still in that series, we arrived at the, the burial and resurrection of Jesus. So let's uh, begin by reading together Luke 23. And from verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandments. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they'd prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. There we have it, the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death, in which his body is taken down from the cross, it's taken by Joseph, it's wrapped in linen cloth, it's laid in a tomb. Now, all the way through this series, all the way through these uh, latter chapters in Luke, we've been seeing um, two plans working out. There's, the, there's God's plan, which is the plan of salvation. His plan decreed through Jesus to bring forgiveness, eternal life uh, to all who call on his name, to, to rescue 
uh, mankind from hell and from eternal separation from God. That is God's plan, the plan of salvation. There's also, as we've been seeing, a plan of destruction. This is Satan's plan. It's almost like we've got Jesus in the blue corner acting out God's plan, what's been decreed by his heavenly Father. In the red corner, we've got Satan, and he's managed to recruit all manner of people, one way or another, with varying levels of awareness, to play a part in the plan that he's trying to bring about, a plan of destruction. So there's, there's Judas. He was the ultimate coup that, uh, that Satan managed to enter Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and cause him to betray the Savior. There's the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, there's the Roman authorities, there's Herod, all part of this plan of destruction, attempting to kill Jesus. There's a God's plan and there's Satan's plan. There's the, the kingdom of light and there's the dominion of darkness. And right here, they are in an almighty tussle, so it would seem. And right at this point in time, it would appear uh, that darkness has been doing quite well. Um, it would appear on the face of things, on the surface of things, as though the enemy and his plan has succeeded. There's a kind of a theme of, of darkness over these chapters. We, we see in chapter 22, verse uh, 45, now at night time, uh, Jesus is in the garden praying with his disciples, but his disciples have fallen asleep. And it says in verse 45 that they were asleep because they were exhausted from sorrow. Well, it's understandable. That is a dark time. It goes on from there when Jesus is actually betrayed by Judas and then arrested. Uh, Jesus says this to those who come to him in verse 53 of, of chapter 22. Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. An encroaching darkness that just seems to be enveloping all hope. The hour of darkness reigns. And from there on we read that the, uh, the scene becomes more and more bleak. Jesus is deserted by his disciples. He's, uh, he's denied by Peter three times. He's mocked and beaten and insulted by the guards. He's falsely accused by the religious leaders. He's ridiculed and humiliated by Herod. He's punished with tremendous violence. He's wrongly convicted by Pilate and he is sentenced to crucifixion along with two criminals. Even at the point of, being, of hanging on the cross, he's being sneered at and insulted at that very moment. And then, in chapter tw uh, 23, verse 44, we read, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. This would appear to be the darkest time in history. Imagine right there that you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Obviously you are right now, but imagine that you were, you were there. You were living in those days. You had spent three years with Jesus. You had 
um, kind of begun to understand and absorb some of his teaching, you'd, uh, you'd witnessed great miracles, you'd seen his huge popularity, you'd seen the hostility he was getting from some, but it seemed like he could do nothing wrong, and he's the man that you are following. But then, this happens. How, how do you feel at that moment in time? Today uh, marks the 10th anniversary, you'll not have, uh, be unaware, the, of, um, of 9-11. And today and all through the week, be it on television or radio, there are many people who are recounting uh, the horror of losing loved ones um, that weekend. And there was one man who described finding out that someone that was dear to him uh, was in one of the towers and he described it was like being kicked in the stomach by an elephant. He felt so unbelievably distraught and without hope. Totally to be understood. Totally to be sympathized with. Absolutely horrendous. Well, is that what was going on here on the face of it? Utterly disastrous for the disciples at that exact point in time. What do you, if you were a disciple right back then, what do you think about Jesus' words now? How do they seem to you now? Do they seem full or do they seem hollow? What are you going to actually do with your life? For three years you've been following this revolutionary, exciting, uh, charismatic leader with a new authority and with new teaching. But now what? After three years your leader is gone, do you think that you would be in the mood to try to rescue something out of all of this and to try under your own steam to pioneer a new world religion anyway? I mean, how long does it take to, to recover from events that are as absolutely, seemingly horrendous as this? A long time. So, in the blue corner, we have Jesus. In the red corner, we have the powers of darkness. It's like a boxing match where the champion has made a promising start and everyone is cheering him on. But in the final round, actually succumbs. It's difficult to kind of rebrand that or try and spin that out as a victory of some sort at face value. Now before now, when we've been looking through this series, we've been considering the question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? What did it achieve? What did it tangibly achieve for us? And we've looked at loads of, uh, well, a few uh, different answers to that question. We've seen that Jesus died to become our Passover sacrifice. He, he died uh, so that he would save us from judgment. We've seen also that he died to become our example, our hero, the one who we would follow and imitate um, by his spirit. He became for us our substitute because he took upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God for our sin and therefore we uh, don't experience that. We experience the blessing and we're given the righteousness of God instead. Jesus died to become our compassionate saviour who is for us our source 
of complete forgiveness for all sin we've ever committed and he is our source of eternal life so that when we die we have a hope that goes beyond the grave we will be with him forever in a perfect and glorious heavenly kingdom face to face with him face to face with our God with our Savior and Jesus died to become the very means by which we actually in the here and now know God we know something of his presence we know his activity in our lives but actually it would have meant nothing at all if in fact Jesus died and remained in the tomb surely surely the revolution is over surely his mission has failed surely he was just another messianic pretender let's go back to Galilee let's go back to fishing who is going to find any hope in Jesus now it may have been good while it lasted but surely his kingdom is over before it really ever began what's left to believe in if someone is knocked out in the ring they're on the canvas it's pretty difficult to see that that's anything other than game over this morning the stakes are really really high because everything hangs our whole faith hangs on what happened next and what we've just read about the uh, uh, the apostle paul he understood this when he wrote to the corinthians and in 1 corinthians chapter 15 uh, we see there verse uh, verse 14 we'll just pick up in the midst of an argument that he's working through he says in verse 14 and if christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith in verse 17 again picking up the thread there and if christ has not been raised your faith is futile you are still in your sins and in verse 19 if only for this life we have hope in christ we are to be pitied more than all men the apostles understood that everything everything hangs on the resurrection everything hangs on what happens next this morning if Jesus had not been raised from the tomb we are still in our sins and we have no heavenly hope of a savior so it is really really important that we when we consider the Easter weekend that we don't stop at the cross we don't just consider the cross it is so, so important, and I believe as we go through um, our time together this, this morning, so encouraging and edifying to consider and get hold of the resurrection. The cross, Jesus' death on the cross, and his resurrection from the tomb go hand in hand. What God has put together, we can't put asunder. Let's not just think cross indeed as we've been doing this morning we've been singing about the cross and the resurrection it's wonderful good news so what did happen next for the disciples we're going to consider a few uh, questions we're going to consider after Jesus death what were they doing and then what were they expecting and then what did they encounter okay first of all what were they doing we come across 
Joseph of Arimathea, a man who, who had the courage and boldness to go to Pilate and say, uh, can I take the body of Jesus? I want to give him a respectable burial. And indeed, that's what he had. Joseph, presumably um, a wealthy man, uh, laid Jesus in a tomb that was cut in the rock that no one had yet been laid in. Um, probably, therefore, this was his own tomb. He was a wealthy guy, and he had this tomb that was really in pre- preparation for his own death and burial one day. But he decides, as his acts of uh, devotion to Jesus, even though Jesus has died, he is going to give that to, to him. Uh, J- Joseph is perhaps, at this point in time, a secret believer. Um, we don't hear about him uh, amongst the 12 disciples or amongst the 72 or amongst Jesus' regular followers, but clearly he has, he's heard Jesus' message. He's described here as one who is waiting for the kingdom of God. And now is the point where he kind of blows his cover and says, actually, I'd rather stand with Jesus in his death than stand with the, the council of religious elders um, at this point in time. So what we see is a man who is honoring, honoring Jesus. Luke also draws our attention to uh, the women from Galilee. Some of Jesus' disciples were women, and they had been uh, following him for a long time. Uh, we first hear about them, uh, or we specifically hear about them before in Luke chapter 8. If we just uh, flick there briefly. I will read from verse 1 um, of, of Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And it goes on to, uh, to list, and some of the names that we see there are some of the names that are repeated here uh, in Luke chapter 24. They're described as these women were helping to support them out of their own means. So for the best part of three years, here are women, women who they have financially backed Jesus' mission and they are following him. And they are doing something like Joseph to attempt to honor Jesus in his death. Because the, the, the Sabbath is about to take place, they can't do it straight away. They, they go to the tomb, they see where Jesus was laid, but they then have to quickly hurry home because the Sabbath is about to begin. And um, in accordance with the Sabbath, they're not going to do any work on the Sabbath, and therefore they have a day of rest um, before the following day, the first day of the week, when they will take the spices and the perfumes that they have prepared um, to, to finish the task of giving Jesus an honorable dignified burial in contrast to the horrendous death that he experienced. So these people, these followers of Jesus, looking to, to honor him, looking to um, show him respect, which when you think about it is quite remarkable given the amount of hostility that this weekend has involved. What would it take for us to stop honoring Jesus. How, how dark would things have to become before we decided, well, actually, I've had enough. I, actually, now is the time. I'm just going to 
to retreat. It appears that, in effect, that's what the apostles do. Those who've been closest to Jesus would seem to, to be on the retreat. We don't hear about them for a few verses. What would have to happen to stop us seeking to honor Jesus? Interestingly, we see in the Gospels that it's often women who demonstrate real radical discipleship and worship to Jesus in the midst of great crisis or hostility. Obviously, we've, we've seen Joseph there as well, this secret believer, but we don't see at this point in time any of the 12 uh, dashing to, to perform these ta- tasks. I think they're, they're retreating. Obviously, understandably, they're completely distraught. They're nowhere. They're off the scene for the time being. But often women are, are really at the forefront, giving all they, they have, giving all they can. And so just as a side point, really, but one to mention, men, do you prefer to not look too fanatical in your faith? Maybe you want to be you know, measured, in control, but just to put out gently, I hope, just a challenge, guys, where are you in your family or in God's family when the going gets a bit tough, uh, when, when there seems to be dark times, dark times ahead. Paul writes to Timothy and he, he says uh, to the men, I want you to, to raise up holy hands in prayer at all times. That's obviously not to the exclusion of women, but again, it's a challenge for us to consider. Romans 12 verse 11 says this, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Let's make it our every aim, our every intention, to always be a people seeking to to honor our Savior, to honor Him. So what were they doing? What were um, Jesus' followers doing? Well, some of them seeking to, to honor Him, even in this very dark moment. But it's important also that we see this. Secondly, what were they actually expecting at this very time? Obviously, they want to honor Jesus, but it's pretty clear as the women are going to the tomb that they are expecting to find a dead body. They are expecting to find a dead body with the processes of decay setting in. That's why they're taking the spices. So they want to honor him, but by preserving or attempting to maintain at least for a short period, what remains. They are not going to the tomb expecting a miracle. They're not going there to discover the resurrection. That's not their plan. They're going there to apply spices and perfume to a dead body. So again, we see that they are doing all they can, but they can't do very much honestly. Once they have finished their task if indeed they manage to get into the tomb, because obviously uh, they have a bit of an issue in that a big heavy stone has been rolled in the way. It's not obvious to them um, how they're going to get access to Jesus' body, but they're doing what they can to honor him. But even so, the normal processes that take place after death will take place. At least that's what they're expecting. So they're putting on a brave face. The one who gave so much hope has clearly been defeated, they're they're putting on a brave face. They're going to perform their normal duties, but it won't necessarily make a huge amount of difference as they 
see it. Jesus is dead, his followers utterly demoralized. No amount of perfume is going to turn that around. Um, so they'll perform their duties, but then get on with another sad but normal week of the same old, same old. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 10 says this, Is there anything of, what, of which one can say, Look, this is something new. Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, had everything life could offer, but he realized there's nothing really new. And that can just be the mindset, perhaps that was the mindset of um, the women as they were going to the tomb. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is new? No, they, they weren't going with that expectation. They were just going expecting death and decay. So question to us, what are our expectations? Even as believers, we can very much live with this mindset. Same old, same old. There's nothing new here. Let's put a brave face on things. We're living in dark times, don't you know? Um, nothing really changes after all. Everything stays the same. Uh, we are what we are till the day that we die. Um, you know, let's eat, let's drink, but tomorrow we're going to die. Uh, it's possible if the, if the resurrection is not a reality in our thinking, in our lives, in our beliefs, then actually that's kind of the motto that we might by default end up living with. Let's eat, let's drink, tomorrow we're going to die. So another question, what, what gets us through the week? If we aren't living in the light of the gospel and of the resurrection, even as Christians that's what our, our motto can be. And if that were the case, what would reveal it is, well, what, is, what do we regard as the highlight of our week? What is the thing that you most look forward to? That's probably the thing that, that gets you through. And that could be anything from uh, a nice meal uh, to match the day on a Saturday night to whatever it might be. So is, is for us Sunday just another Sunday? Are we just expecting the normal, the normal routine, the same old same old. Is, is joining with God's people like today a duty that we perform or a, de, a, a delight that we pursue? One says, the meetings are always so predictable. You always know what's going to happen, don't you? The other says, what does God have in store for us today? What gets us through the week? Also, how do you view today Jesus' body. Now there are a number of places in the New Testament where the writers make clear that today and now the church is the body of Christ. We could see that in 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. Paul writing there, he says, the body is a unit. He's talking about the church. Though it is made up of many parts and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. We, the church, are the body of Christ. So how do we see God's church today? Do we see it as basically decaying, in decline, defeated? Do we think we will attempt, we will attempt to give it a respectable burial? Let's try and arrest the decline with something that smells sweet. Let's try, and, let's try and maintain things. Church in maintenance mode is entirely missing the point. 
in exactly the same way that though well-intentioned, these women from Galilee were entirely missing the point. God, unbeknown to them, had already been powerfully at work, but they were just not aware of it as yet. And so they're seeing everything through a view of the world which is essentially gloomy or negative. God is, God is great, but even he can't turn back the tide. In the end, God might have a few aces up his sleeve, but death triumphs at the last. So they're unaware of what God is actually doing. It's like, it's like having a surprise birthday. If you know your birthday's coming up, and um, you're thinking, I, I, hope, I hope my friends, I hope my family have prepared something really nice. But everything goes quiet. No one's really saying anything. You kind of drop in a few hints maybe about what you would particularly enjoy, but it all just seems to go on deaf ears until the big day arrives itself. Maybe you go out to work or you come back in and suddenly, surprise! Happy birthday! Oh, right, takes you by surprise. You're beginning to see everything so negatively because well, everything had gone quite quiet. But actually, all the while, preparations had been made. All the while, a plan was working its way through that would actually be totally fantastic. God has already been active that morning. Before these women got up, God got up and he raised Jesus from the dead. And that changes everything. We have... We've got to bear this in mind. We have an enemy who has been completely defeated. We've seen this battle, this, this, uh, the plan of salvation and the plan of destruction, kind of working alongside each other, it would seem. Which one wins? Well, we know it's our God. It's the kingdom of light. It's our wonderful Savior who wins. But we have an enemy who, even though he's been completely defeated wants to give the impression that he's stronger than he actually is. We read in uh, Colossians of just how utterly defeated and humiliated the powers of darkness actually are by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We read in Colossians 2, verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is the wonderful truth of this gospel. However... Satan will always try to give us the impression that he's stronger than he actually is and intimidate us into believing that we are on the losing side. Now, when I was about um, six, seven, eight, uh, growing up at home, I was a suburban lad, lived on a very quiet, respectable cul-de-sac in the southeast. But on my street, there was a bad lad. Um, there was a guy, and his name was Troy. Kind of just sounds appropriate, doesn't it? Very Greek. Um, 
And it might, I know you're going to struggle to believe this, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, he was a bit bigger, a bit stronger, and I thought a bit tougher uh, than I was. Stop press. Um, now, if I was with a group of friends and we saw him, we would act calm, but just slowly back away, kind of like a tactical retreat uh, to the safety of a garden. Um, if I was by myself, I can remember one occasion, I know you're going to struggle with this, I ran for my life. <laughs> this was Troy we're talking about. I was a grasshopper in my own eyes, and so I turned tail. Obviously, I, I kind of explained that a little bit differently later. Yeah, me and, me and Troy, um, we, had a, we had a bit of a thing, we had a bit of a fight, and uh, I showed him who's boss. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I ran for my life, and um, he didn't actually have to do anything to get me to do that, because, actually... Mainly, it was up here. The reality was, yeah, maybe he had a few inches height on me. And I'm by no means, by using this illustration, by no means am I suggesting that um, any of you young whippersnappers out there should suddenly decide that you're going to do fisticuffs with every uh, bad boy on your street. Um, but nevertheless, the point is, I, he didn't have to do anything. I was already scared. I already had put myself on the losing side, and so it was inevitable that I would run away. Do you think that you are on the losing side? Do you think the church is in decline? Do you think God's kingdom is on the wane? Do you think things were better maybe a little while ago? Do you think maybe there are some glory days back there, and now as a, a church are our main occupation is to indulge in I remember whens. You know, do, do you remember the good old days of you know, 2004 when we did, we did a harvest week and we put on those evangelistic meetings? Do you remember the, the good old days of, of, the, of, of the late 90s when we were just laughing all the time and falling on the floor? Do, do you remember the, the good old days? Do you remember the good old days? What are, your, what are your good old days? Are they back then or are they yet to come? Now, we're not on the losing side. And so, again, we find Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, um, he's letting them know what he is praying for that particular church. And he says in Ephesians 1, verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who feels everything in every way. Let's ask the question again. Is, is the church on the losing side? It would appear very much not. God placed all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, appointed Jesus 
the head over everything. Who for? Why? For the church. But perhaps there are occasions where, like the Ephesians, we need to have our eyes opened to what is true. And indeed, that's what happened to the women who go to the tomb. They needed their eyes to be opened to what had actually taken place. And there was a number of ways in which that happened. Their eyes began to open because the tomb was empty. There was evidence to suggest something incredible has happened here. But it's still possible to be skeptical at that point, just considering natural evidence. Or maybe the body's been stolen or whatever. And so they were wondering about this. What's happened? In other words, they were totally at a loss. They were still completely stumped. There's a clue, but they still haven't understood it. Uh, someone writing about the apostles has said this, The apostles were not men poised on the brink of belief and needing only the shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of resurrection. They were utterly skeptical. That's very interesting. And in some ways it's very reassuring because we could think today, well, people are really skeptical of the supernatural. Obviously back then, years ago, Jesus and his followers, they were less sophisticated, they had less scientific understanding, and therefore basically they were gullible. Were they expecting to find Jesus raised from the dead? No. They were utterly, utterly skeptical. The women didn't expect it. The guys, when they hear about it, it sounds to them like nonsense. It sounds to them like idle talk. They weren't expecting it at all, which in some ways is reassuring that actually skepticism can be overcome. And there's nothing to stop people having a revelation of what actually took place in the tomb uh, today. Empty tomb, but there's more. As an, the angels appear, and they appear and bring this, uh, this message. Um, they begin by saying, why do you look for the living among the dead? They've got a negative mindset. They're just expecting death. They're expecting uh, decay. But God has done something completely different. The angels uh, state the truth. He is not here. He has risen. But it would even appear there, perhaps. They still need some convincing. And so they go on to say, What's most important for us to bear in mind, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then, it says, they remembered his words. Jesus had a number of times predicted his death and resurrection way before it happened. And it's almost as though the followers of Jesus kind of made a mental note of that, but totally didn't understand it, and so just kind of shelved it. And so when Jesus actually dies, they weren't expecting it to happen. They, they thought maybe there's some strange uh, figurative or uh, a spiritual meaning to this that we're, mi- that we're missing. And sometimes that can happen in the church today. Everything just gets kind of spiritualized into nothingness. There's the, the principle of resurrection. There's, there's the principle of God doing new things, but there's no literal expectation that God does new things. God actually, literally raised Jesus from the tomb. When they arrive at the empty tomb, when they hear the angels, and then when they remember Jesus' words, the penny 
begins to drop. For us, ultimately, our confidence rests on Jesus' words. There is evidence in the scriptures um, that clearly indicates that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we base our faith on his word. He is faithful to every promise. And in dark times, we need to be absolutely sure of the scripture, of God's promises and his faithfulness to them. And just to sum up, in all of this, I think it's important to remind ourselves, we are not called uh, to positive thinking, as though that achieves anything. We're not called to be a, be a people who are just putting on a brave face, who are just trying to be optimistic. We are not a people who are called to honour a dead God. We are not a people who should only have small expectations. We are not a people who need to kind of just be burdened by same old, same old. What we've seen before, that's what will happen again. Everything stays the same. We are not a people who have been called into a kingdom that is somehow on the wane. We are a people who are called to put our trust in God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they are. That's what Paul says in Romans 4 verse 17. God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they are. We are called to be a people who, as Peter puts it, are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We are called to be a people in a dynamic and real relationship with a saviour who is very much alive and active. Jesus' death did not curtail his ministry because he rose again. And then Acts records what he continued to do on earth after his resurrection and return to heaven. For those of us who are in Christ, our death one day will not curtail our existence. It will not curtail our relationship with God. It will merely punctuate our relationship with God. In actual fact, it will serve to bring us more fully into the presence of God. And we are called to be a, a part of his kingdom that is forcefully advancing and to be part of God's church that he is building and will not be um, snuffed out, will not be squashed by the evil one. And we are called in this life and in the next to a glorious inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. The one question remains is, how have we seen that? Have we seen that yet? Have our eyes been opened to it? It's possible that we can think, same old, same old. That's what our lives are about. That's what, kingdom, what God's kingdom is about. Paul's prayer is that the eyes of our hearts might be opened to perceive how great is his incomparably wonderful power for us who believe. He now is living and ruling and reigning the head over all things, the head over the church for our benefit. Have we seen all there is to see or is there a glorious future 
for God and his people. Let's allow today our eyes, if they've been drooping, to be opened to the glories of this gospel. We have great reason to rejoice. We have great reason to expect much of God. We have great reason to believe that his kingdom here in Sheffield will be forcefully advancing. Let's take hold of it. Let's not be like I was with Troy and just think, I'm on the losing side, quick, scarper. No, we've got a great God. We're part of his kingdom and we can expect a glorious inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. Let's have our eyes fully open. Let's pray.